Do you consider yourself a high achiever? Smart, driven, highly successful? I am so excited to have you. My name is Julia Arndt and I'm the host of the Stress Podcast. I will help you develop your stress resilience the same way you've developed your workplace superpowers. Learn peak performance tools to thrive at work and in your personal life. Let's get started. Hi, James. I am super excited to have you on my podcast today. Yes. Thank you so much, Julia. I appreciate it. This is exciting. We've met recently and ever since you told me we were going to do this, I've been really pumped. Okay. Awesome. Well, tell us a little bit more about what you've been up to today because I have a lot of international speakers and podcast guests. So I always ask them, where are you located? Which time uh -huh. zone are you in? And what have you been up to in the morning? Yes. So I am James Buckley. I am located in the Great Smoky Mountains in East Tennessee in the United States, uh, the Old South, as it is sometimes referred to. Uh, and today I have been prospecting. Uh, we're doing a workshop in Toronto, Canada. So mm -hmm. I've been reaching out to people out there and asking them if they want to come learn some great stuff about sales, how to do it right, how to make it effective and fun. Very cool. All right. Um, so tell us a little bit more about who James was 10 to 15 years ago. Oh, if you would have asked anybody that knew me then where I am today, they would tell you dead or in prison. <laughs> uh, so 15 years ago, I was living in Miami, working two jobs to support a cocaine habit. Uh, and 13 years ago, so two years after that, Mark, I moved away from Miami and moved to East Tennessee, and I've been sober since. So I had a completely different life uh, 15 years ago that I talk about pretty regularly because I think it's important and lots of people relate to it. Yeah. And I was super excited to talk with you about addiction today because I think it's a very important topic when we're talking about stress because a lot yes. of people use drugs in order to release stress. And so I thought it was very cool that you are so open about it. And so my very first question about this is um, how long were you addicted and why do you think did you start? Yeah, that is a good question. I think that I probably started because I was dealing with a lot of problems at home. My parents were going through a pretty ugly divorce at the time. Uh, and there was just a lot of stress on me. And I also kind of had all the right friends at the same time, uh, or the wrong friends, if you will, right? <laughs> Depending on how you look at it. Uh, but, but I did have a lot of friends that already had connections and were pretty well known for what they did. And at the moment, uh, it seems like a great idea when you're you know, 12, 13, 14 years old, and you're hanging out with some kids that are a little bit older than you. And, and they say, Oh, you know, you're one of us, you know, and you feel like I gotta, I gotta be one of you. So you jump in and you try all these different things and you want to be the cool guy. Uh, and in the end, what you're left with is no friends and something you can't get away from. So mm -hmm. that's kind of how it happened for me was, uh, and I, I guess probably the, the reason one of the driving reasons that I started was that when you're on, on drugs in general, uh, or, or even alcohol, I think sometimes can do this, you can really run away from whatever the problem is, right? I have a friend that describes it as reality, just bouncing off of you. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's really valid because when you're messed up on some stuff, you can look the other way at all your problems, ah, whatever, you know, who cares? <laughs> yeah. How long um, did you use drugs in order to get away from your reality? 
Um, so I, I probably started smoking pot around like 12, 13. And I think I did that until I was around 18 or 19. Okay. And that's when, that's when the, the cocaine usage probably got pretty heavy. Uh, so, mm-hmm. you know, years, a few years, I, I like mm-hmm. I said, I, I left Miami in 2006. So, mm-hmm. uh, let's say it was 18 and 2000. So probably about six years, I was into some pretty heavy dope, uh, doing anything I could just to get the next high, whatever it looked like. My drug mm-hmm. of choice was yes. Mm-hmm. And were you aware at the time that that wasn't really good for you or were you like, oh, I'm not addicted to it. I'm just doing it because for what oh. reason like what is going on in your mind when you're using drugs i think i think a lot of people think that they don't have a problem and they can just put it down anytime they want um mm-hmm. cigarette smokers feel the same way right oh mm-hmm. i could quit smoking it's no big deal uh i'm two years without a cigarette now so i've i've even given mm-hmm. that up i've gone that far with it um cool. but it, it is it is one of those things that i think we tend to neglect about ourselves right we think that what we're doing isn't harmful and it's not hurting anybody and you know it's my business and i don't mm-hmm. have a problem like there's a number of things that we say to ourselves mm-hmm. to try to justify our actions you know mm-hmm. uh, and our actions often are, are pretty extreme we do crazy things and say crazy things to people to get that next rush that we're looking for, whatever it looks like for you. It's different mm-hmm. for everybody, right? Some, some people are really into crack and some people are really into cocaine. Others do heroin. I did it all, you know, like whatever mm-hmm. I could get my hands on. So you can imagine the things that I would come up with uh, mm-hmm. to try to get money out of people so that I could support my habit uh, mm-hmm. to try to have, so like sometimes I would ask my boss to like front me money from my paycheck so that I could go and get high. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you, you make these, these deals uh, with people so that you can continue to do whatever it is that's driving you. And it's just really an insane thing. And you don't know that you have a problem. In fact, you're very adamant about telling people you don't have a problem. Like, no, that's not me. Like you can just wave it off. Like it's no big deal. (laughs) And I, I feel like, I feel like even today with problems that are not drug related, society has conditioned us to just turn our backs on them and not face them and look the other way. Drugs is no different, right? We have that addiction mm-hmm. and we say to ourselves constantly, like, just, just put it, put it, I'll deal with it later. You know, I'll quit yeah. anytime. It never yeah. happens. Never comes. Yeah. Very rarely I, anyway. For sure. I, I love that you say that because I, I'm not a big fan of drugs. I'm not a very heavy drinker, <laughs> which, you know, sometimes I almost feel like I am not part of society because I don't really like to drink and I don't really like yeah. to get high or, you know, or drink a lot and be drunk. And, um, and I'm watching, you know, I like to watch TV, of course, in the evenings when I want to wind down. And I'm watching a um, series at the moment called Private Practice. It's like very similar to Grey's Anatomy. And literally every time the doctors get off work, you see them with a drink. Oh, yeah. And I'm yeah. always like, this is so crazy. They literally tell everyone, everybody that is watching TV, that it is normal that when you're getting off work, that you're having a few glasses of red wine or you're having, you know, a glass of whiskey or something like that. And I'm always like that, you know, we are so conditioned to believe that this is not a problem and it's fine. We are. And, you know, I feel that way all the time about cigarettes, too, because you see that a lot in films, especially older mm-hmm. movies from the 90s, mm-hmm. you know, when smoking was cool. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you, had sure. to be a, you had to be a cigarette <laughs> smoke. For those of you out there that don't remember this because you're too young or just because you weren't in that frame of mind at the moment, uh, I remember Joe Camel 
uh, and the Marlboro man, the cowboy, you know, mm-hmm. like you'd, you'd see that stuff and you'd, you'd immediately be like, I got to have a cigarette, you know, and you'd stand up and you'd go outside, have a cigarette. You're just a slave to that conditioning that you talked about earlier, right? We've been conditioned this way as a society mm-hmm. um, for people like yourself that aren't a huge fan of drugs, don't drink very much. It's very easy for you to feel like an outsider, yeah. Because that's the thing that people do. You hear it in the office all the time. Hey, are we going to happy hour tonight? Hey, are you going to yeah. join me for a couple of drinks? Sometimes it can get pretty wild and you stay out late. And then later there's all these great stories that everybody's exactly. telling. And you're that, yeah. you're that person that's on the outside like, oh, yeah. I didn't miss it. No, I don't drink. You know, and it's, it's, it can be an outside feeling like you're looking into the group. And I think that's part of addiction that nobody talks about because mm-hmm. everybody talks about what it is to fight the craving. Everybody talks about what it is to break down and give in. Everybody mm-hmm. talks to, to the fact that, you know, eventually we all relapse at least once, right? It's going to happen. Mm-hmm. It's when you look, what you learn from that relapse experience and how you apply it later. There's lots of things I could talk about in this world, uh, in this world of addiction and, and recovery. Yeah. Uh, but the one thing that's not talked about is what happens after. Mm-hmm right? And after it becomes really difficult to fit in just about anywhere because normies, as they're often referred to, don't have that problem. They don't feel like they're addicted. They're not addicted. They can drink a drink and then not drink again for months. It's not a problem for them. But alcoholics don't have that gift. You know, people that are alcoholics, they, they go into that situation knowing they're putting themselves at risk. And that outside person is just like, ah, come on, it'll be fine. They think nothing of it. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I want to kind of make sure that I'm, t- you know, asking you all the questions because I'm really curious about your whole story. So when did you realize that you had a problem and like, was there a special moment in your life or what, what happened yeah. that you were like, I need to change? Yeah. So I did have a special moment in my life. Um, that moment came in the form of an injury. So uh, you may or may not be able to see it. There's some light scarring a bit. On, yeah. on my chest there. Uh, so that came from a burn. I have some scarring here up under my chin as well. Uh, but it was a grease burn. I, I was on a lot of cocaine and it was about three, four in the morning. We were shutting down this kitchen that I worked at in Miami and uh, somebody came in and they said, Hey, Jimmy. And I, I turned really fast. And when I did, I dropped that, that, that rag that I was cleaning the fryer with in the grease. And I quickly reached in before it seeped down in there and I grabbed it and I pulled it out. And when I did all that grease came out and hit me right in the face. Uh, So I of course went into like full on panic mode only to realize, Hey, you know, I don't really feel a whole lot of pain. Well, turns out it's really hard to feel pain when you're on as much cocaine. I was on. So I'm like ripping my clothing off thinking that I'm on fire, you know, and I'm, I'm, I, or, or that I'm, you know, severely burned. And it turns out it wasn't as bad as I thought it was initially, but I did have some, some burns on my chest and my neck and my face. So my, my boss at the time says, you know, you got to go to the hospital. And I was, I was like, I can't, I can't look at me. I can't do that. You know? Yeah. Uh, so long story short, I end up at the hospital. There's a whole story behind how I got there, but the doctor that I had saved my life. Uh, when I was in the chair, he was putting what they call Silverdine. You might've heard of it. Silverdine. I think some people pronounce it that way. Uh, and it's essentially like a burn cream. Mm-hmm. So he's looking at my face, making sure there's no like deep tissue damage, but you can tell when you're under all those fluorescent lights, right? And you're on this cocaine, your eyes are so big and doctors, I see this stuff every day. 
Of course. So they're not foolish, right? They know that you are, he's, you know, pain. I'm like, no, I'm great. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, these are the types of things that doctors see all the time. They're very familiar. So he says to me, I'm going to do a chest X-ray. I'll be right back. Just want to be sure that you're in the clear. So I said, okay, no problem. So he comes back and puts the chest X-ray up on that big light. And he says to me, do you see this NFL football sized thing that's in your chest pushing on your rib cage? And I go, yeah. And he said, that is your heart. And at any moment it could rupture and you die in about eight seconds. And there's nothing that anyone in this building would be able to do to save you. Uh, so I said, wow. Okay. Uh, you know, thank you. His response to me was, I'm not going to tell you how to live your life and I'm not going to call the police and have you committed, but I am going to tell you that if you don't stop living the way that you're living, you're not going to make it another couple of years. You'll be gone long before then. Your heart will just give out. It's pushing too hard. Uh, so I went home that night and uh, the next day I got a truck and I loaded up everything I could. And a couple of days after that, we were on the way to Tennessee. And I never looked back. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I've been back home a couple of times. I still have family down there. But, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those places that you're happy to get to and then leave. You know, you, you get mm-hmm. back to your, your normal life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Miami, the motto in Miami, for what it's worth to you, is come on vacation, leave on probation. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard that before, but that's great. I've yeah. been to Miami and I'm glad I left without the probation. <laughs> yeah, you want to go without the probation for sure. Yeah. Um, and so you left Tennessee, you know, you were aware that something in your life, that your lifestyle that you had was not really good. Did you get any other help or did you get help in general? Because it doesn't sound like you got really any help besides once that doctor telling you that you're, you know. No, I, I, that was all it took for me to get away. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, was, it was the cornerstone move I made to better my life was removing mm-hmm. myself from the scenario that I was in. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone around me at the time was doing it. Everyone around me at the time mm-hmm. had their own. Everyone around me at the time was okay with it. No one was mm-hmm. challenging my lifestyle mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when this happened, it was basically a red flag for me that said, I've got to get out of here. Now, fortunately for me, I had family in Tennessee. I had an uncle that owned a powder coating business. And he told me, if you come up here, I can get you a job. No problem. Mm-hmm work at the plant, take your time with it, learn the trade. It'll be great. Uh, so that's what I did. I came up and I got this, you know, very blue collar job uh, and it paid the bills. I got a little house um, and I, I just lived a really normal life that I, or as normal as it could be. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was a little bit of a struggle at first. About a year in, my father passed away and I dove straight into the bottle. Uh, which, of course, led me to go find whatever I needed. Uh, fortunately for me, the cocaine in Tennessee is the worst cocaine in the world. Mm-hmm. So I knew this is where I need to live for the rest of my natural-born life. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, so that's kind of how it went down. Um, you know, I, I think that we all have these, like, hallmarks, these cornerstones in our lives where, like, decisions get made. Mm-hmm. deciding to uproot everything I had in Miami and move to Tennessee is mm-hmm. what put me on the path to become what I refer to as successful. I think success mm-hmm. looks different for everybody, but for me, looking back in my rearview mirror and seeing the old James in there, I feel I've come a long way and no one will ever take that away from me. And making yeah. that initial decision to get out of there was the best thing I ever did. Mm. 
That's awesome. And you actually already answered one of my questions that I had because you were talking about relapse and that especially when we are being put into very stressful situations, then obviously we are having this trigger that then from our old habits, we are used to going back down the route of, you know, like drugs, for example. Yeah. Um, so you said, you know, that that happened, for example, when your dad passed away. How is that in today's life? Like, are you still like sometimes having a thought of like, um, oh, I wish I could just, you know, take a line. I don't know if, that, if that's what you said. <laughs> that, so, like, pretty close. It was pretty close. Uh, do a line. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, do a bump. There's probably a number of things. Do a rail. I don't know. Um, I, so that was just the beginning. My father passing away marked a change in me that I didn't expect for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. um, that was two years after I moved to Tennessee that happened. And uh, shortly after that, I got a divorce. Mm -hmm. That divorce was even more stressful. It was probably, I hold the crown for the worst, messiest divorce you've ever had or mm -hmm. seen in your life. I'll spare you the details, but it was ugly. Mm -hmm. That said, it was a lot of stress, but you know, I never once thought about relapsing or doing anything hard drugs related. Okay. Uh, I really, I really, I would argue that I drank a little bit, you know, from mm -hmm. time to time just to cope with the stress. But mm -hmm. outside of that, I really, and it was easy for me to set that down because I never really had an alcohol problem. Um, but yeah, I like going through the divorce happened and then, uh, you know, meeting my current wife right now and then uh, mm -hmm. us moving into each other and that just perpetuating the ex-wife situation. Like you can have the kids, all four of the kids, like you can imagine mm -hmm. what that looks like. Uh, the stress was just unbelievable. And yet I never felt the need to go back to the, to the bag. It never bothered me at all. Mm. Uh, and even now I can, I can go home. I can see it in nightclubs. I can see it at bars and, you know, I've even been offered it a time or two and it's very easy for me to, ah, no, that's for you. And mm. I think the reason for me to feel that way is because the life I've built is just so much more satisfying than that ever was. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so how do you cope with stress today? Uh, so I will drink like one, two glasses of whiskey. That's about it. And usually it's like every other night, sometimes Friday nights, sometimes not at all for weeks at a time. Like I don't feel drawn to it. I shoot a lot of pool. I watch a lot of movies. Uh, my wife and I walk a lot. Um, you know, there, there's, I work, I do a lot of work. Like I will default to work. I love that. Mm -hmm. um, even though some people will find that to be a stress causer for me working i'm in sales and i'm a sales trainer so mm -hmm. talking about sales like my passion is sales mm -hmm. so just defaulting to something you're passionate about whatever it looks like yeah. that's my suggestion for everybody like we are all as an addict we're all passionate about whatever we're addicted to when you give it up you just by natural defect something else takes its place what am i passionate about sometimes it's animals sometimes it's uh, sports sometimes it's mm -hmm. working out right fitness i don't know there's a number of things well sales right. for me was that thing that took its place hmm. uh cooking and sales right mm -hmm. like those two things are the things i default to yeah uh, yeah mostly eating on the cooking side lately <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, you know, that, that I think is, is how I cope with stress is I do something that I'm passionate about that I enjoy doing. Mm. Uh, and that helps to keep the stress down. And mm. it helps that you build a career around that thing that you're passionate mm. about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. Even though I feel like 
you can be passionate about something and that can get really stressful too when you're building a business around it, no? <laughs> it depends on how you're building the, the business and how much pressure you're putting on yourself. Some, yeah. some people put a, a ton of pressure on themselves. When you put that kind of pressure on yourself, it's only natural that stress mm -hmm. would come with the, with the territory. But some other people, like myself and a few friends of mine that I know that are, have that entrepreneurial spirit, mm -hmm. right? We, we just have a past behind us that it's just not that important. So one of the things I say all the time, uh, I meet a lot of young sales reps. I meet a lot of young, brand new to the industry, SDRs, sales development reps, for those of you out there that don't know the acronyms. Uh, they come to me and they want to talk about how I became successful, how I built my brand, how I mm -hmm. get over these particular obstacles, these objections that they go through. And it's funny because the conversation always goes deeper. So I say things mm -hmm. to them like, hey, let me ask you, are you an only child? Mm -hmm. And in that moment, they think to themselves like, I mean, I don't know why that, what does that have to do with anything that, that we're talking about? Uh, and the reason it's important is because you want it now, whatever it is. You want that success. You just became a sales rep. You want it right now. You feel pressure mm -hmm. to go be successful right now. Mm -hmm. But that's because it's the most important thing to your life right mm -hmm. now when mm -hmm. you're new and when you're in it and you're young. But mm -hmm. when your dad dies, that job doesn't mean anything anymore suddenly everything else in your life has the volume turned way down mm -hmm. and suddenly you can handle just about anything because you compare it all to that mm -hmm. and what compares to that right yeah so that's and then another one that i say is are you an only child uh or or are both your parents still alive right for that reason those two mm -hmm. questions can really mm -hmm. tell you a lot about somebody and how they handle stress because Those two things, have you ever been through a divorce, right? Like these, these questions of like big, life, pivotal life changes, people that get through those and don't have to take medication or do have to take medication or don't end up like psychologically damaged from the stress, people that make it through, we are tough mm -hmm. when we make it through those things. We mm -hmm. become so thick skinned. We can handle just about anything and we don't need dope to do it. It mm -hmm. just naturally comes to us as something we can handle. I think the big portions of our lives that shift our perspective are those moments. Mm -hmm. I think you just described really well what resilience actually is and how we develop resilience because mm -hmm. there's a lot of studies around when people have had these really difficult moments in their life, they're actually able to rebound quicker um, in new challenging situations than other people yeah. that never had a difficult situation in the first place. I think there's, so, so I don't know how deep into philosophy you are. I like to consider myself a, a, con, a consumer of philosophical thought. And I know about the veil of ignorance, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I use that term when I talk to sales reps all the time because customers live in their own veil of ignorance. But in reality, it's a very human condition. Right? We all make decisions based on our experiences in the past. What that means is we're not considering external experiences, mm -hmm. people out there that have had other experiences in the similar scenario that we're currently in. Yeah. That means they don't weigh in. They don't, they don't factor into our decision-making process. That is a problem mm -hmm. for human beings. We're not 
programmed to be empathetic enough to see it from other people's perspectives other than our own mm-hmm. until we're programmed to, until someone shows us that path. Yeah. And I've, I, I'm thinking even about it, like how you're saying to a child to not touch, you know, something hot and they still do it anyway because they don't <laughs> yeah. have the experience, right? So until they don't know that it's really hot and what it does to them, it's hard for them to, to not understand or to understand what, what we're trying to tell them, right? Yeah. And let's be honest, they've probably had experiences where you've told them not to do something and they've done it and then nothing bad happened. Yeah. Well, that too. Right. So they don't think anything about it until the hot thing happens. And then, ow, that, you know, hot, right. That, that hurt right there is the lesson. So I, you know, I, I went back to college when I moved to Tennessee, I was 30 something going back to college, 32, I believe sitting in classrooms in college with 19 year olds, minored in sociology, right. Uh, so I like to say, I'm, I majored in writing, I minored in sociology. So I like to tell people, I can write about what you're going to do before you do it based on your history, <laughs> right? <laughs> nice. Yeah, so so uh, sitting in these classrooms, you have these conversations about things like capital punishment because it's sociology, right? Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Well, we, th- we think about, when we think about punishment for our kids and our family dynamics, what's that look like to you? These are conversations that happen. So I went to a very liberal arts college, very liberal, very liberal. Uh, and I'm sitting in this classroom with, you know, people that come to class with no shoes on because that's liberal arts colleges. Yeah. Uh, and uh, this young lady turns to me when we're talking about family and discipline and she says, I'm never going to spank my kids never. And I go, okay. And she, everybody, of course, turns to look at the old guy in the room to wonder what I think. Uh, so I simply said, well, I'll tell you what, when you do have a child and they dart out into the parking lot at Walmart, we'll have this conversation again. Mm-hmm. And you might feel differently in that moment. Mm-hmm. Because everybody who's ever had that experience where their child darts into a parking lot, grabs them by the arm, puts them by the car, and then wears them out to make sure that that never happens again mm-hmm. because you don't want them putting their life in danger simply to dispute your stay by the car, right? Yeah. Which kids inevitably push that envelope anyway. Yeah. So that's the world that I was in was sitting in these classrooms with these extremely inexperienced life people, right? We all know somebody that's 22 years old and is a life coach, right? Yeah. When, when you, <laughs> when you, when you go to a liberal arts college at 32, you're sitting in a room full of life coaches. <laughs> <laughs> so <coughs> did you also come across people that were on drugs and, or that were even addicted or that you, you know, got to know and you were like, oh, you know, based on my experience, I see what they are going through. And have you done any, like, would you do anything in those scenarios or would you just let them do their thing? So it's a difficult thing to navigate, right? So I'm a part of an organization, a nonprofit organization called Uncrushed. Check us out, uncrushed.org. We're focused on things like mental health and business, addiction, grief, loss. These are all things that we focus on and we talk about pretty regularly. Uh, And we want to, I host the podcast Uncrushed. We want to hear those stories. And one of the things that I'm very comfortable saying is that not everybody wants help. Right, you have to know the when to jump in and offer that advice, that help. Mm-hmm. You know, people have to be ready to take that step. Mm-hmm. I think that addiction 
nowhere does that ring more true than the addiction world mm -hmm. because you're never going to convince somebody that's addicted to heroin that what they're doing is killing them you know they don't want to hear that even if they could hear it they don't want to hear it yeah so they move the opposite direction. They want to get away from that. I don't want that help. You've got to help the people that want to be helped when mm. they want to be helped. And they have to come to you and ask for the help. You can't just volunteer it. That's a good way to get somebody to shut you out. And then they go about their life and you're pretty much cut out of the picture. If mm. that's the goal for you and you'd rather be cut out of the picture, by all means, express your opinions left and right. Tell them everything you want, to, want them to know about how you feel about their addiction. Yeah. You know, because they'll run away. They'll never talk to you again. I promise. That's not what they want. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you really want to help them, just listen, just hear them out. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, if you really want to jump into their life and see what it's like, you, you have to you have to listen to what they have to say. And you can't discredit their reasoning. That's the thing that most people do wrong in families, because inevitably that's the person that they go to first. Mm -hmm. Right. They want to talk to that family member that they're close to. That family member essentially says the following words. You know what you should do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. That's you know, yeah, it's true. They all do it. And it's not because they want to tell you how to live your life. It's not from a place of malice. Right. Yeah, it's no. because it's because they want to guide you to somewhere where you feel more comfortable, safe without this problem. Right. Yeah. Well, and also because they love you and care about you and they don't want you to be in that place. Right. And that's why. Yeah, I guess that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Most, mostly I think. And you know, that, that was actually the second part of my question of what do you do when it happens in your family? Yeah. Right. Because I think there's a difference between, okay, I see this maybe more like stranger that has a problem mm, and you know, I can right. turn away from that a little bit easier, but then what if it happens in your family and how as like somebody that might be listening and says, I'm not addicted, but I know someone that is addicted. How can I help them? Um, what would you tell them? Um, so, so first of all, I'll touch on the people in my family and then I'll touch on the people that know someone that's addicted. Mm -hmm. uh, if it's my family, my responsibility lies with simply being here if they need me. Mm -hmm. uh, that need has to be legitimate, right? I'm not an enabler. Because I'm a former addict, it's very easy for me to spot addictive behavior, mm -hmm. right? When, I, when somebody's calling me at four in the morning to tell me about their career advice, for example, right? I, first mm -hmm. of all, I don't need your career advice, and I especially don't need it at four in the morning, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> that person is clearly having a problem. That, mm -hmm. It would be really easy for me to call them back the next day and yell at them for calling me at four in the morning. It would be easy for me to call them and say things like, what you're doing is messed up. You shouldn't be out there partying at four in the morning. And if you are out there partying, you shouldn't be dialing people's numbers. It would be easy for me to pass all those judgments off. Instead, the answer is, hey, I saw I missed your call. Is everything okay? Mm -hmm. Right? That's how I handle it. Because I think asking the right questions helps them trust you a little bit more with the care that you have to have in order to help somebody through a problem like that. I, I oftentimes will ask members of my family that have those problems, you know, has anything that you've, you've done improved your life? The, these are deeper questions that force mm -hmm. them to look inside, mm -hmm. right? It's really easy to look outside. Oh, I drink because of this person or I drink because of this scenario. Mm -hmm. It's harder to look within and say, I have a choice to make, mm -hmm. right? If I ask the question that forces you to be reflective in thought, you're going to say to yourself at some point, I can beat this, right? Mm -hmm. I don't have to have this. And once that decision is made, that's the first step. Maybe you can 
you can take it from there. <laughs> yeah, no, I love it. I, I'm actually smiling because I just watched a movie on Saturday and I, you know, in my head I was thinking, okay, here's the next question I have for James is what do you do if people don't listen or if they don't answer the question of, of those deeper yeah. you know, thoughts or things, but then, yeah. and then where the smile came from. <laughs> I was thinking about that movie, which was Coach Carter, um, ah. Samuel Jackson. I love this movie. And you know, he always asks those youngsters the question, what is your deepest fear? And they are always like, you know, what does he mean? And they probably discredit him at the beginning and they, you know, just completely ignore the question. But yeah. it still kind of sticks with them and they still start thinking about it. And I think it's so beautiful to see how at the beginning you know, nobody answers it. And then, you know, at the end, somebody gives like a very deep speech about what their deepest fear is. And yeah. Fear is a giant driver for success. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that whether good or bad, fear plays a big role in all of the decisions that we make. When you make a decision, no matter how big or how small, it's fear that mm -hmm. comes right after no matter the decision, you could make it for this, you could make it for that. There is a small or large element mm -hmm. of fear. What if this fails? Mm -hmm. What if I made the bad decision? What if the decision I made causes more harm mm -hmm. than good, right? I think that fear is what drives us to actually make snap decisions because we fear one way or the other. So we make the decision, mm -hmm. right? But The funny thing about fear is that it's also the one thing that we have to get through and face if we want to find that success, whatever it looks like. Mm -hmm. So while it's easy to be like, oh, I'm never going to make that decision to do whatever it is because I'm afraid, it's really simple to do that because you never have to make the decision, right? Addicts mm -hmm. of the world, alcoholics of the world are still alcoholics, right? Mm -hmm. uh, there's lots of them out there that have never once joined a, a, a program, never once tried to quit. Uh, lots of people make that decision instead. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think that fear is definitely what stops them from making the decision. I'm afraid if I do it, I'll fail. I'm afraid if I do it, I'll have to actually have responsibility. I'm afraid mm -hmm. if I do it, my kids will come back into my life and I'm not ready for that. Mm -hmm. Right. There's a, a number of things that I think that and and the judgment part is enough. I'm afraid of the judgment. Like it mm -hmm. took me a long time to be comfortable talking to people like you about this mm -hmm. because I was afraid of the judgment I might get from the general public. Right. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, his opinions are this way from because of his veil of ignorance. Right. Mm -hmm. Or or I don't agree with him. So I'm going to argue. Right. You don't have to agree with me. I'm okay with that. Right. It took me a long time to realize that I, I don't have to be right. I can just have an opinion. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. I thought it was great when I met you the first time and you mentioned it <laughs> right in your third sentence. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, I think we are surprised because not a lot of people, like you said, talk about it very openly. But then sure. if they do, you know, I feel like that, that instant connection that you have because of that because, you know, a person is opening up and, you know, that has something to do with vulnerability, which I love to talk about because you open up and now I'm like, wow, like he shared something so personal with me. I feel more comfortable to share something personal with you too, you know? So let me ask you this question, right? And for you salespeople out there that are listening, or even just for you people that you know, struggle with connection, right? Some people feel very disconnected in this world. Right. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever met somebody 
that you immediately shake their hand or you meet them on a call or you hear their voice and you go, I really like that person. Absolutely. Have you ever met somebody that yeah, way? Absolutely. Sure, lots of people, right? <laughs> yeah. Conversely, have you met somebody where you meet them and you're like, if I never see that person again, I'll totally be okay with it. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> right. So the reason that you felt the first way about me is because I am not afraid to open up. Mm -hmm. I have no care as to what you think of me. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be myself and true to who I am. Mm -hmm. And I'm, and if you ask me, I'm going to tell you, regardless of how personal I might feel like it is, mm -hmm. because of that, you trust me. And because you trust me, 20 minutes into our first meeting, you were like, I have to get you on my show. <laughs> right? It's true. Yeah, absolutely. It's true. Yeah. Of course it's true. Yeah. So, that's, so that's the purpose, right? That's the reason mm -hmm. why we have to go through that fear is to get, to get this, to get that out of our system and be able to reconnect mm -hmm. with all of the people that are around us because it's there. Everybody knows how to connect. Mm -hmm. It's a matter of whether or not we want to connect. Mm -hmm. this, nowhere is this more obvious than on an airplane. If anybody's been on an airplane in the last five years, you know that no one says the word. It's completely silent. Yeah. There are 300 people on that plane, but it's quiet. Mm -hmm right? No one talks to anyone. We all just wander through life avoiding connection mm -hmm. until we're, until it's, you know, eight to five. And then we're like, oh, I guess I got to connect with people, right? What does that do? That puts us in a mindset of work equals connection, which I don't like. Mm -hmm. Now think about how that affects your success at, at your job, your upward mobility, your movement, your, your momentum. Mm -hmm. Right. It, it's all intertwined. I, I could probably go on about that forever. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's a really interesting topic. Um, I would like you to talk a little bit more about Uncrushed. Um, so you already mentioned yeah. that you're working for a nonprofit organization. Yeah, that's right. As well, Uncrushed, where you're, um, you know, sharing stories of people that have had difficulties in their life, no matter what kind of difficulties, right? From, um, I think you talked about eating disorders, um, addiction, burnout, yep. anxiety, depression, so mental health issues. How did that start? And yeah, what, what, <laughs> would, what would you like us to know about Uncrushed? Yeah, so first of all, it's a great organization. It's nonprofit and it's uh, truly designed to help others out there that again are are ready to be helped that want to seek out that resource for them. We have a resources page. You can check us out, uncrushed.org. Uh, it's definitely one of those situations where we feel like sharing those stories of overcoming these adversities in the mental health space in general mm -hmm. helps others to know that they're not alone. Now, mm -hmm. I want to make it clear, none of us are mental health professionals at all. We do not have, you know, doctors or psychiatrists or therapists on our team. I mean, we might have a couple, but, <laughs> but they're not, we are not out there preaching that we can professionally aid you in whatever it is your recovery looks like or your mental health issue is. That's not what we do. What mm -hmm. we do is we let others in the, in the world know we hear you. We understand there's a story out there where somebody can relate to you. Mm -hmm. What our job is, is to remove the stigma of mental health. We mm -hmm. know that in business, 
in life, in just about anywhere. Mental health issues do not discriminate. They don't care about your race, age, gender. None of it matters. Uh, if you have a mental health issue, you know this better than anybody. And if you know somebody that has a mental health issue, you know that it does not discriminate, right? Mm -hmm. But yet so many are afraid to talk about that. They're afraid to open up to their employers and say that they're struggling with things like addiction, grief, loss, divorce, depression, mm -hmm. right? We want to be able to expose that as something that absolutely should be discussed mm -hmm. because these employers, these companies out here, they want to have all of their people working at their peak performance, mm -hmm. right? But how can they do that if they can't even talk to you about the stress they deal with, about the anxiety, about the fear, about the depression, about the alcoholism, about the addiction, about whatever it is yeah. that's getting to them, that's making them feel weighed down. They're afraid to step forward into the light and share that for fear of the same things we mentioned earlier, right? Persecution could take place, judgment. You could get labeled. It could stop you from getting a promotion. Mm -hmm. It could stop you from moving to that department that you've been trying to get into for a year. It could get you a label of unstable, right? You could be a threat. There's a number of different things that could happen as a result of you stepping into the light and saying, I suffer from anxiety and depression. I suffer from an eating disorder and it's killing me slowly, right? Like there's a number of, of results that could happen that are not beneficial to the individual, but rather protective of the company. We want to do both. We want the people to be able to speak freely about what their needs are in the mental health space. And we want the employers of this world to know, hey man, you've got to take care of your people, whatever yeah. that might look like. Mm -hmm. And then the employers have also said many times, like it's very difficult to navigate that because you can't sit down in an interview and be like, so are you a schizophrenic? Do you take any medication? Right? You can't, yeah. you can't say those things yeah. in a job well, interview. And I think for companies it's challenging as well because I think they, they wonder if all of their managers and all of their leaders have to become mental health professionals in order to help their workforce, you know? Um, I think they, you know, they're trying to set a boundary of like, you know, we, we cannot help with that. We need to outsource these things. But I think there is a fine line of what managers should be doing and help with and should be aware of and what then has to be handed over to mental health professionals, you know? I would agree. Uh, what, I, what I would add there is that somebody has to facilitate the conversation yes. and teach both parties how to have it effectively. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. And that I was person... actually just pulling up a statistic because what you were saying is absolutely true and right. And here's a data point that, that really supports that. It says that only eight, only 13% of employees feel comfortable disclosing a mental health issue to their line manager. Yep. 13%. So it's still very, very, you know, when we talk about stigma, that still holds really true because We are, we, we are afraid what, what the consequences might be if we are sharing and if we are a human be being at work, right? It's a devastating statistic when you yeah. think about it. That means, that means that out of everybody that's currently working, 13% feel comfortable talking to their management mm -hmm. about their mental health struggles. Mm -hmm. I, that number should be so much higher. Yeah. Like so much, like it should be ridiculously higher. I would be comfortable looking for like 73%, you know, but it, we've got to change our society to more accepting of these mental health issues if we want that statistic to come up a little.
Yeah. And the only way to do that is through education. It's through exposure. It's yeah. through knowledge that no one is immune to this. Yeah. No one, is, no one. Is, is on the outside like we were talking earlier. Yeah. When you're looking into that mental health room, people you know, love, and have probably sat next to for years are yeah. in that room. I'm <laughs> having a problem, 100%. Yeah. And that's why I love what you're doing with Uncrushed. I think it's a really, really amazing um, way to, to foster that conversation. So I'm super Thank excited you. that we met. And, yes. Um, kind of going coming to an end for the podcast today i always have a few questions that i ask my podcast guests at the end of each episode and the very first one is what are you most grateful for i am most grateful for the circle that i've created mm -hmm. the circle i've created in the last 13 years has done nothing but help me grow and mm -hmm. that you couldn't ask for a better group of people around you Yeah, wonderful. Social connection. I have that answer a lot um, for that specific question. And I think it really shows how important that is for our overall well-being. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is there, do you live by like wisdoms in your life or like what are the three big things that, that you feel like you live your life by? So uh, chivalry, I live my life based on chivalry. I will hold a door for any woman in the world or open their car door. Uh, my wife has not touched a doorknob in 13 years. Hmm. Um, <laughs> uh, I also live my life by kindness. I try everything that I can to be the kind person that's in the room, right? I want that to be the thing they say about me when mm -hmm. I die. Maybe such a kind person. If I have one person that says that to me, I'll feel good. Nice. That's the yeah. second one. What's the third? <laughs> ah, so uh, if I had to choose another one, I do, you know, I, I it, communication. I, I always default to good communication because mm -hmm. I think good communication solves 99% of our problems. If you think yeah. about any major or minor issue that you've ever had, you could have probably solved it with better communication. <laughs> yeah, 100%. And, you know, I love that you're saying kindness because I think that's something that people wouldn't necessarily associate a salesperson with. Yeah, that's, we're trying to <laughs> remove that stigma as well. The sleazy okay. salesperson is a stigma that I really don't care for. So I try yeah. not to be that person. Yeah, nice. Have you read any books that have changed your life or something that maybe you're reading over and over and over again because you feel like there's so much truth about it that you always find something new? Um, you know... I can say that there have been a couple of books that I've read multiple times that are helpful. The first one, and probably the most influential for my selling capabilities, was my friend Larry Levine's Selling from the Heart. Mm -hmm. So this is a book that is centered on authenticity in the sales process, stating okay. that we have to be our authentic selves. We can't be an empty suit, as it's said in the book. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, nobody likes the, the sleazy sales rep, right? We, yeah. we ra rather have somebody that cares for our success. And that's the person I'd like to be. So Larry Levine's Selling from the Heart, I read many times. And then Jeb Blunt wrote a book called Sales EQ. Okay. Uh, and it's essentially about how salespeople need to be emotionally intelligent mm -hmm. in order to effectively sell because people buy with their emotions. Yeah. Uh, but we, Very but cool. we sell with facts and figures. So. Yeah. 
sound they sound really interesting these books great i will add them i will, I will add everything to the show notes anyway uncrushed and um, the resources your books and um, that's already great and so the last one that i'm going to add is how can people connect with you if they are curious to learn more about what you're doing Thank you. I love that question because I am one of those weird people that give my contact information out on right. all the podcasts. <laughs> so if you want to connect with me, I want to connect with you. 305-632-6005. That's my cell. I answer my phone all the time. Uh, and then if you want to email me, james at jbarrows.com. Great. Thank you so yeah. much, James. Um, that's so helpful. And I am so excited that you are on the podcast today and that you shared your story so openly. And thank you. I am sure that a lot of people hopefully will take, take some, you know, thoughts away from this and hopefully, you know, are feeling inspired to make some changes in their life. So thank you so much for being here. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. I look forward to meeting up again in the future. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.